This morning, our sermon will come from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 28. These are the words of God. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please by the Spirit open your word to us, these instructions for your people in every age and certainly to us today, that we may understand, that we may believe and embrace, that we may do, that we may live this out all to your glory and to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. For we pray in his name, amen. Well, it's been our custom from time to time to address various issues of contemporary relevance. And so that's what we want to do for the rest of the month of January is just take a handful of sermons uh, before we go back to our study in Genesis. So I'm calling this little series the Foundations Series because our focus is going to be on just a handful of things that are foundational to our calling, our power, and our effectiveness as Christians in this fallen and often hostile world. And I'm calling this first sermon, When the Earth Shakes, because that's the way it often feels in this life. And that is certainly the way that it feels in our society today. We live in times when the societal ground beneath us is rapidly shifting. Things that you've been able to take for granted for generations, not just Christians, but unbelievers as well in our society. Things like the difference between a man and a woman or the meaning of marriage, that it's a man, one man, one woman, a lifetime commitment, that a home that is constituted by a man and a woman committed in marriage is the proper context for the raising of children and so forth. These things that were just taken for granted for so long can no longer be taken for granted. Not only have they been forgotten, they have been denounced. They have been rejected. They have been called evil. And so this is kind of societally speaking like an earthquake. The ground is shaking. Tectonic plates are moving. And it's never fun going through an earthquake. It's chaotic. It's confusing. It is scary. But what we need to realize as Christians is that we're not the first Christians to go through this sort of thing. Millions of our brothers and sisters, both in the world today and those who have gone before us in history, have gone through times just like this or worse. In fact, that explains our text this morning Our text in particular, but the whole book of Hebrews, was written in the first century to Christians who were living in equally and really more tumultuous times than we are. 
the Jewish Christians to whom this book was written experienced persecution almost immediately after they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was their, the, the, the leaders of their, their kinsmen who were bringing it. It was the establishment, those in power and authority in Jerusalem. Very quickly, you read about it in the book of Acts, they had to scatter, they had to get out of Judea because of the persecution uh, a lot of it being brought by Paul, who would be converted by Christ and become an apostle, but they had to scatter. They were driven out of the synagogues, and in that day, if you were put out of a synagogue, you, you were completely shunned. Nobody would do business with you. Basically, you lost your life as you knew it. Your job was over your business, it would be very difficult to maintain. And so people were scattered throughout the empire. And so they had experienced this uh, type of persecution and rejection and suffering for Christ for almost 40 years by the time that this letter was written. Jesus was in about 30 AD when he was crucified, buried, when he was ridden, when he ascended into heaven. And so now we've gone almost 40 years. It's in the 60s A.D. And many of these Jewish Christians are just getting worn down. They're, they're weary. They're very weary. And many of them are facing the temptation to turn back to a Christless Judaism. Because it just doesn't seem like they're on the winning team. Their understanding was that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father to the throne of God, and all power and authority in heaven and earth was his. And he was going to give historical proof of the fact that all power and authority was his. And when we look back in history, 40 years from 30 to 70 A.D., it just doesn't seem like that very long uh, of a time. And in the context of history, it's not. But if you're living it, 40 years is a long time. That's a long time. Day by day crawls by. Meantime, they're suffering. Meantime, Herod's temple is still being built in about 63 A.D. It's finally going to be finished after decades of building. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's beautiful and glorious. The establishment in Jerusalem is wealthy. It is powerful. It seems like that's the winning team and so it was a temptation for many of these Jewish Christians to turn away from Christ and turn back. Now, what is going to happen just within the next few years is first it's going to seem like things are getting worse. There are going to be four different Caesars over the empire in the span of a single calendar year. So there's political chaos in the Roman Empire. And then... Uh, a bunch of, um, uh, of real Jewish zealots are effectively going to uh, come into power, take over essentially in Jerusalem, and you're going to have the, the, the Jews revolt against the Romans, and then the Romans are going to send in the Roman legions to rectify the situation. You're going to have the jewish Roman war in which over a million Jews are going to be killed because the Romans are going to come in. 
They're going to come in from Galilee. They're going to march down throughout all of Judea. The whole land is going to be covered. It's going to be a forest of of crosses with Jews crucified on them as far as the eye can see. And then they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem, start starving the city out. They're going to breach the walls. And they're going to completely lay waste. They're going, to, they're going to completely burn and destroy the temple. So all of this is going on at the time that they were living. And so Christ wants us and other Christians who experience these kind of uh, tumultuous type times to understand what's going on. Does not want us wondering. And What is going on in a nutshell is this. This is what our text tells us. Christ is Lord of the world and he is shaking the nations to further his gospel kingdom purposes. Christ is Lord of the world and he is shaking the nations to further his gospel kingdom purposes. That's what verse 26 is talking about when it quotes Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. What's he talking about? explains it. I will shake all nations. To what end? They shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple, literally I will fill this house with glory. So Christ is ultimately the one who is doing the shaking. He is the Lord of the earthquake. He is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord of the chaos. Because if he is not Lord of these things, he cannot deliver from these things. But he does not shake the world Because he enjoys messing with people. Jesus shakes the nations because he enjoys saving people. And this is an integral part of bringing people to faith. So what does it mean for the ground to shake? Well, what it means is political turmoil, social unrest, economic distress, wars, conflicts, so-called natural disasters, anything that makes people begin to question the fallen human self-deception that they as autonomous individuals or their autonomous governments are in control and everything is going to be just fine. You see, it's not loving for Christ to allow people to continue in that kind of self-deception. He has to bring them out of that to bring them to the truth, to bring them to himself. The purposes are salvational. And we'll come back to all that in just a minute. But you see, Christ's kingdom and his gospel go together. Now, we in the modern evangelical church have managed to separate those two things, but we should never separate what God has joined together. After all, what was the gospel that Jesus preached? Matthew 9.35, Jesus went all about the cities and the villages preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
You see, in the Roman Empire, the gospel was what was proclaimed whenever a new Caesar ascended to the throne of the empire. So that's why in Acts chapter 17, verse 7, the apostles are accused of violating the decrees of Caesar because they were saying there is another king, Jesus. If you preached the gospel of Jesus, you were preaching that Jesus is king and Lord, and that was against the law. It could get you killed. That's why John, in the greeting of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, this is before the vision. This is before all the apocalyptic stuff. This is in the greeting, the howdy duty. He introduces Jesus as the ruler over the kings of the earth. That was a present reality 2,000 years ago. We need to put the gospel and the kingship of Christ back together because they go together as God intended. And we need to understand that Christ is shaking the nations. You know, one of the verses that we love to quote in the modern church is worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It's a great verse. The thing is, we never read the verse that's immediately adjacent to it. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Those two go together. They're one and the same. So let's ask the question, how specifically does Christ sovereignly presiding over political turmoil and economic distress and social unrest and wars and natural disasters and shaking the nations, how specifically does he use that to bring people to turn to him? Well, Christ's focus in shaking the nations is on the foundations of life, what people are building their lives up. The Bible speaks of just about everything we do at every level as the building of the house. Uh, The building of an individual life is described as building a house. The building of a family is described as building a house. Uh, A local church, building that is described as building a house. Building a nation is described as building a house. Indeed, the entire creation that God has made is described as a house. And so the focus with houses is all on the foundation. Because if a house begins to sag, if a house begins to break down, if a house begins to collapse, it's always a foundation problem. If the foundation is good and you're building that house, you can make a mistake, even if you make a mistake with the framing at one point or the sheetrock or the wiring or something, you can back up, you can fix that because the foundation is solid. If the foundation is not solid, if it has cracks in it, you're going to constantly be repairing sheetrock and plumbing and wiring and everything else in the house and the roof. You're never going to finish fixing stuff constantly because the foundation is not good. So Christ's focus in shaking the world is on foundations. What are people trusting in? What are they building on? In other words, what are they worshiping? What is their God? That's the issue because that's what people build on. 
And here's the thing. When the ground shakes, when an earthquake hits, what do people do? They grab for whatever they think is going to bring them through. They grab for their foundation. They grab for their Savior. They grab for their God. They grab for whatever they think is going to stand up to the storms of life. What Christ is doing by shaking the ground is revealing all the foundations for individuals, for families, for churches, for businesses, for institutions, for communities, for whole nations. He's revealing the foundations. Which ones are false? They're phony because they will not stand up. They will not deliver. And which is true? And what the Bible reveals to us that Christ and His Word is the only rock on which we can build to last. You see, in good weather, every house seems good. In good weather, all foundations seem strong. It's only when the storm hits, when the hurricane hits, when the earthquake hits, that you really have revealed the true and the false, which foundations are good and which are not. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Jesus said, whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. It is Christ's shaking of the nations that reveals all the false things that individuals all the way up to nations are building their lives on, on the one hand, and on the other, the one true rock, the Savior and King, that stands up to the storms of life and final judgment on the last day. So how are we as Christians supposed to respond to this big picture understanding of what is going on? Well, our response in a word is to worship God, which is one and the same as saying that we are to serve God. To worship God is to serve God. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, because it is founded on the rock of Christ and his word, let us have grace by which we may serve or worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The Greek word here for serve, it also means worship. To serve is to worship. To worship is to serve. They're one and the same. And so we can see this connection when Jesus responds to the devil in chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 10. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We see it also in the famous verse, Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul sums up the entire Christian life 
in terms of worshiping or serving God. But I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. And in that day, you have to remember in, the, in, in Greek thought, they saw the body and matter as being uh, the, the, the source of evil in the world. They saw evil as being metaphysical, connected to matter and to the body specifically. And so they could understand offering souls. It would never make sense to them to offer the whole person because that would involve the body. So Paul specifically takes that and says, you present your body. In other words, you present your whole selves, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or worship. Now, it's interesting when you think about what we're being told to do in response to the ground of our society just shaking like crazy and breaking up in every direction. What are we supposed to do? And it says, well, worship Christ. You know, it seems like our text is telling us how to check out, how to unengage how to become effectively irrelevant. But the truth is, our text is telling us how to check in, how to engage, how to become relevant, not only relevant, but potent, because you see, done biblically, worship is warfare. And all of these, this whole concept of shaking the nations is also depicted in the Bible as a spiritual warfare between those who are standing for the truth, pointing to the true rock that is the only foundation, and those who are clinging to all the different false foundations, which amount to anything other than Jesus and his word. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. That's what we need. We need the power and might of God himself for him to rise up on behalf of his people. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Can we think of some things in our day that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God? All over the place, in the news every single day, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we have to understand what kind of war we are in. Are we in a political war that has some religious implications? Or are we in a religious war, a spiritual war, a faith war that has political implications? Well, 2 Corinthians 10, and indeed the Bible as a whole, keeps telling us adamantly that we are in the latter We're in a religious war, a faith war, a worship war that has political implications. Far too long Christians have failed to realize this. And you see, when we fail to realize exactly what kind of a fight we're in, 
We're like the guy who brings a knife to a gunfight. We can only lose because we don't understand what kind of fight we're in. And we got the wrong weapons. Paul says that our ultimate enemies, while they certainly have human dimensions, but ultimately our enemies are the dark spiritual powers behind human opponents that are exalting false foundations. And part of the warfare, the critical part of our warfare, has to strike blows directly at the dark spiritual forces that are behind the scene. The fact that worship is spiritual warfare is a point that God drives home again and again through Scripture because it's really hard for us to get it because it's not something that we can see with our eyes. God spends a lot of time in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, driving this point home. One of the most famous ones is one of the most famous passages of Scripture, and that is the conquest of the great walled city of Jericho in Joshua chapters 5 and 6. The whole episode and the way it is drawn out in detail is God teaching us the truth about the war we're in and about the weapons with which we must fight. Now, so I want to go over this with you quickly. But keep in mind that by the time Israel gets to the Jericho and they're looking at this famed walled city, God has already told his people straight up that Canaan is occupied by seven nations, each of which is greater and mightier than Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. God says, I just want you to know what I'm calling you to do is impossible because every one of these nations is greater and mightier than you. You ready? Okay, let's go. In other words, this is a war you cannot win if you don't understand the kind of war you're in and if you don't fight with the weapons that God has given us. And central is worship. Now, I've quoted in your outlines for you uh, a lot of the passage from Joshua chapter 6, which is the conquest of Jericho. But before we jump into chapter 6, I want to remind you what has already happened in chapter 5 starting at verse 13. Joshua's preparing for this siege, and he looks up and he sees a man standing by himself, and the man has a sword drawn in his hand. And so Joshua goes up to him and says, Are you for us or for our enemies? And he gives one of the great answers of history. He says, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua falls on his face and worships this one. And it's interesting, this is where we begin to realize that this is not an angel. Because holy angels in Scripture, whenever anybody starts to worship them, which is pretty common, uh, they always stop them. And they explain they are, they are a servant of the Lord themselves and are not to be worshipped. But this one does not stop Joshua from worshipping him. In fact, he says, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy. That, now, that's just language for saying you're standing in the presence of God. Those are the same words that God from the burning bush told Moses. 
Take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. You're standing in the presence of God. So this is not an angel. It is God the Son. In other words, this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he became incarnate as a man, he is appearing to Joshua because he wants to make sure that Joshua and the people understand very clearly what spiritual warfare is all about and how to fight it. And so he receives and affirms Joshua's worship. And here it is as the commander of the Lord's army that Christ pre-incarnate has appeared. Now it's interesting in the New Testament, we will see the risen and ascended Christ again appear in this role as the commander of the Lord's army in Revelation chapter 19, where Christ is pictured riding out with his armies to conquer not the seven nations of Canaan, but all the nations of the earth. And in Revelations 19, his name is called Faithful and True. His name is called the Word of God. His name is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verses 11, 13, and 16. And the armies that are following him this time are not angels, but saints, those who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. In other words, they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the sword with which he is going to strike the nations, it's not in his hand this time. It's coming out of his mouth. And when you put all of that together, what you see is that just as the historical physical exodus from the, from the land of Egypt, from the hand of Pharaoh, was a picture of our spiritual deliverance from the hand of Satan, who rules by the power of sin and death, even so, the military conquest, which was a historical event, the military conquest of the seven nations of Canaan was a picture of Christ's conquest of all the nations by the word of God pursuant to the Great Commission. We need to add one thing to that picture, which is the rod of iron, which is the other instrument besides the word the sword of the word by which Christ conquers and reigns. In chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 5, Christ is the male child born to rule all nations with a rod of iron. So you see, being slain by the sword of Christ's mouth, that's a picture of conversion. That's a picture of coming to faith. That's a a picture of dying in yourself and rising again in union with Christ. Being slain by the rod of iron is a picture of historical judgment, the first demonstration of which we have from the risen and ascended Lord Jesus was the military conquest and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and all the tumult that led up to it. So the rod of iron is historical judgment in the form of political turmoil, social unrest, economic distress, wars and conflicts, and so-called natural disasters. Does that sound familiar? It's all the historical phenomena that put stress on the conditions that people need to live comfortable, quiet, and peaceable lives in this world. Notice the connection between the rod of iron 
and shaking the nations because they're the same thing. Coming back now to Joshua 5, the main point that Christ pre-incarnate is making to Joshua is that this is not Israel's battle. This is not Israel's battle that God is helping her with. This is God's battle that he is giving Israel the privilege of serving with him in. And the same thing is true for us. The war that we are in today, it is not our war that we're going to get God to help us with. If we approach it with that attitude, we will lose, or rather I should say, we will continue to lose. Because God himself will see to it. We must understand. So you see, we don't do what Joshua did and ask Christ if he is for us or for our enemies. Wrong question says the commander of the army of the Lord. The question is, are we for God? Are we willing to take up the sheer privilege of fighting with him in his battle? And if we are for God, and we take up that privilege, then Joshua shows us what to do. Joshua falls on his face, and he worships the Lord. Now we come to Joshua chapter 6. And we're told initially that Jericho is shut up. Nobody's going in or out. It was a famed wall city. There were no walls like this one. And the word was it was impenetrable. Nobody could take Jericho. Of course, this is the first place they come to when they come into the land. And so Christ points out Jericho to Joshua, and he says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, and its king, and all its mighty men of valor. Now all Joshua can see is the great wall city of Jericho. That's what he sees with his eyes. That's what we see. That those whom we must contend with and stand against, those who are increasingly seeking our lives, are much more powerful than we are. We have to understand, though, it's not about what we can do. It's about what Christ can do. And he can make the walls of Jericho fall. It's not a problem for him. The question is, do we get it? Are we going to fight in his war by worshiping him? Then... In verse 6 of chapter 6, we're told that God for six and a half days is going to have Israel do nothing but enact ritual worship to the Lord. Once each day, they're going to go and they're going to have the Ark of the Covenant, which stands for the presence of God and also God's gracious covenant with his people. They're going to march around with the Ark of the Covenant all the priests will be there. They will have the, the ram horns. The ram horns were blown when you were calling together a holy convocation, when you were announcing the day of Jubilee, and when you were mustering the army for war. Notice the connection. 
between worship and uh, warfare once again. He's going to have them march around the city once each day for six days, not making a sound. Nothing but worship. That would have been very clear to the Israelites and very clear to those of Jericho as well. On the seventh day, he's going to have them march around the city seven times. More worship. And then on the seventh time, he's going to have the priests blow the ram horns and the army is going to take up the shout. And when they do so, the walls just collapse. Now I ask you, for six and a half days, it seems like the Israelites have checked out, are unengaged, and are completely irrelevant to this walled city. But in the end, it brings the walls down. Now, you tell me what was more important to this great victory. Six and a half days of nothing but worship or half a day of mopping up? It was the worship by which God brought the walls down. So when Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, he's calling to mind specifically this image of the walls of Jericho coming down. And the prime weapon he is referring to is worship. So this should shape our view of worship and it should govern the way we worship. We're going to talk more about worship next week. We'll get into more specifics about what does it mean to worship God acceptably. But today we need to get the fact that this is where the power is, is in worshiping Christ biblically. So many times, I'm sure, for, all the, for the army of Israel marching around the city, many times at worship they had probably had been distracted. They had probably had a bit of a ho-hum attitude. They were probably halfway engaged on some prior occasions of worship. But I can guarantee you that when they were marching around that great walled city, they were fully engaged because they finally got the true nature and the power of what they were doing. In the Lord. And the same thing needs to happen to us. Whether we can see where our eyes, the enemy's stronghold or not, we need to know by faith that when we are gathered here, as we are today, we are in fact marching around the enemy's fortress and the Lord is weakening their walls. When we are praising the Lord, we are weakening those walls, or rather God is. When we are singing, God is weakening those walls and putting fear in the enemy. Because you see, the enemy can't hear us sing. What do you want them to hear? That's what robust singing to the Lord does. When we confess our sins from the heart, we are striking blows against the enemy and the Lord is weakening those walls. When we hear the word and we receive it, when we bring our tithes and offerings, when we join together and participate in the Lord's Supper, when we fellowship with one another after the service, 
These are all blows against the enemy. And the Lord is weakening the walls. That is what we need to do, is understand what we are doing here. We need to throw our whole selves into it. We need to believe the Lord's word. He, it is his fight. It's a privilege to participate. You know, another great picture of warfare is another one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and that's David and Goliath. You know, none none of the army of Israel could engage with Goliath. Only David, who was a picture of Christ, only David could engage with Goliath. And though, But when he, by the power of the Lord, kills Goliath, that's when we stop reading. We don't read the next part. Because the next part is all the army of Israel is called on to the fill of battle to pursue the Philistines. You see, the battle that Christ fought on the cross and in the grave is one that we could not help with. We're like Israel. We're just standing there. There's nothing we can contribute to that. We're totally helpless. But one Christ is won, once he's won that great victory, he calls us onto the field of battle. Not because he needs us, because he loves us. We're his brothers and sisters that he has died to save. He wants us to share in his battle, his work, his kingdom, his glory, his joy, his victory. He gives us the privilege. That's the way the Lord works. And that's the way we should think about worship and approach it. And, fathers, that's the way you should teach your children to think about worship as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.